Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. If there's a starting point to relationship between Russia and China, it's likely the 1650s, when Manchu and Cossack forces clash near Khabarovsk, and when Russia sends its first and unsuccessful embassy to China. It's an inopportune start to four centuries of trade, diplomacy, imperialism, ideology, and quite a bit of personal griping between different Russian and Chinese leaders. As charted by Philip Snows, China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict and Concord, published by Yale University Press earlier this year. Snow writes of Russian territorial grabs, China's reliance on its northern neighbor for diplomatic support and training, Russia's confused attitude towards the east, and then the rapid reversal of power and status with the death of Stalin. Philip Snow has traveled extensively in Russia and China since the 1960s and has lived in Hong Kong since 1994. An expert in Chinese international relations, he is the author of The Star Wrath, China's Encounter with Africa, and The Fall of Hong Kong. Today, Philip and I talk about the China-Russia relationship spanning four centuries and what that history tells us about China and Russia's relations today. So, Philip, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Y- you know, as noted in my introduction, you know, you start the book in, in the 17th century. You know, how did these initial contacts between Russia and China start? Right. Well, very nice. Thank you very much for your introduction, Nicholas. Um, I would like to expand a bit on these early contacts. Um, it rather depends what you mean by contacts. That is to say, if you're talking about when did the first Chinese and Russians rub up against each other, you could actually trace the relationship back to the 14th century when both China and Russia were under the um, Mongol sway. Um, the Mongols, in the, Mo- the Mongols um, employed a t- regiment of imperial guards, their capital, Khanbalik. These guards were known as the Wolwasa, which is generally thought to mean Rus. And... Um, Khanbalik was, of course, on the site of where Beijing is now. So the likelihood of um, some kind of exchanges, some kind of bumping together of Chinese and Russians um, at that time is quite considerable. However, if we're talking about serious formal contacts, then yes, we do have to go back, go forward rather to the um, early 17th century when the Russians began to get 
prodded rather um, rather ironically by the English, who were desperate to find a trade route to China passing through Russia. And eventually the Russians woke up to this and decided they better do something themselves. And so a first reconnaissance mission um, led by a certain Ivan Pietlin set off in 1618 and made its way to Beijing. Um, This was followed later on in the 1650s um, by a more organized um, embassy under a certain um, Fyodor Baikov. Um, which was received by the then newly installed Qing dynasty in Beijing. But parallel to these um, tentative expeditions, and um, there was also a different movement going on to the north in which um, Cossack migrants were making their way right across the, the length of Siberia and establishing settlements in the in the Far East, and by the end of the 1640s, a party of these Cossack migrants um, had um, got as far as the Amur Valley on the northeastern fringe of China, um, where, as you say, they came into collision with the outposts of the new Manchu rulers of China. So you've got two two lots of Russians approaching China at the same time. Um, the, um, the um, tri- formal diplomatic con- um, contingent were known to the Chinese as the Ulu-Se, um the Cossacks who were marauding on the northeastern frontier um, were known as the Lorta, or flesh-eating demons. And it was only in the early 1670s that the um, Qing finally concluded that the Lorta and the Erlwasa were in fact the same people, and that consequently they faced a um, formidable new power to their west and north. So, you know, one thing one thing that I didn't quite realize, um, which I should have earlier, after reading your book, is that is that a lot of what is today's Russia um, actually used to be part of China. You know, I think a lot of the a lot of the Russian Far East um, used to be China, or maybe more accurately, used to be used to be Manchu. So, you know, I guess to to phrase things bluntly. How much of today's Russia used to be used to be Manchu? Well, you're quite right that after after about a hundred and thirty years of peaceful coexistence in the eighteen fifties, the Russians decided to switch to a policy of territorial expansion. Um, Russian flotillas where came down the Amur River depositing settlers. Um, and in, in the between the years 18, 1858 and 1860, the um, Russians effectively enforced three treaties on the Qing government, 
which entailed the detachment of what is sometimes known as Outer Manchuria. That's the whole area to the north of the Amur and to the east of the Osuri as far, far as the Pacific, a gigantic expanse totaling something like 1.5 million square kilometers um, and sometimes involving the most extraordinarily um, far-fetched sounding Chinese claims, even to places like as far as far, far afield as Lake Baikal and Kamchatka. Now, after this, after this initial huge biting out, biting off of territory, um, the this initial acquisition slightly fades into the background. Um, over the following um, century and a half, um, the there were incessant border disputes and squabbles, but really all cover all based on the new frontier which had been agreed between 1858 and, and 1860. Um, um, and, the, and the these 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 bo- local border squabbles actually comprised quite a modest um, amount of territory, a mere 35,000 square kilometers. So you've got the big acquisition which fades into the background and these continuing border squabbles which actually relate to quite a small area. Um, Now, the border squabbles continued right up to the 1990s when the last kinks in the border were ironed out and in 2004, a final settlement was announced um, with which everybody outwardly seems to be happy. But the fact remains that the original big acquisition still lurked in the background. Back in 1964, Mao Zedong had had threatened at one point to what he called present the bill for the mid-19th century czarist acquisitions and even to this day, um, even to this day, teachers in in Chinese schools are still said to inform their history classes about the unreclaimed but immense expanse of Outer Manchuria. Yet another important um, acquisition, originally made by the Tsarist regime, later pursued by the Soviet successor regime, relates to Outer Mongolia. Um, from, about, from the early 20th century, the um, Outer Mongolians had been agitating for independence from ma- mainland, from Qing rule. And in 1915, Tsarist diplomats were able to induce the new newly minted Republic of China to agree to a deal under which the Outer Mongolians would become um, an autonomous entity, um, though still nominally subject to the Qing court. Um, This deal got briefly reversed 
after the um, collapse of Tsarist rule in 1917. But by 1921, the um, Soviet Red Army had installed a um, pro-Russian regime in Outer Mongolia and um, had in effect secured the um, the original deal under which Outer Mongolia was autonomous, um, though nominally belonging to the Chinese to China, um, but in for all practical purposes detached from China. Mm. So. But this actually leads me to my next question, you know, which is because we're getting into conversations about, you know, the unequal treaties. Um, but in reading your book, Russia seems to kind of flit back and forth about how um, how imperialist it wants to be, I guess, regarding China, kind of flitting between uh, wanting to be like um, its other Western counterparts like Britain and other times trying to act as if it's... Um, China's kind of benevolent protector, um, although while also continuing to take its territory. Kind of how, how does Russia's kind of flit back and forth between these different um, well, you're strategies right. towards China? There is a kind of ambivalence. Um, after the Bolshevik takeover in Russia in 1917, the new regime, um, the new regime tried to make it clear that it was going to be to break in every respect with the Tsarist past, um, a, de- a document issued in the name of the Deputy Commissar for Foreign Affairs, whose name was Lev Karakhan. The Karakhan Declaration announced um, that um, the Bolsheviks were coming to bring freedom to China from the lure from the lure of foreign bayonets and the lure of foreign gold. And so this, this was the kind of crusade on which the Bolsheviks appeared to be embarking. Um, and the Karakhan Declaration um, um, involved yielding up of all the... Um, concessions which the Tsarist government had acquired in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, not least the highly important Chinese Eastern Railway across Manchuria. Um, However, in the year, the Karakhan Declaration was issued in 1919. In the following year, by the following year, it seems that the Bolshevik leaders were having some doubts about what they'd conceded to China, um, in particular the Chinese Eastern Railway and, and its um, attendant rights. Um, Trotsky is said to have ranted that um, he saw no reason whatever why the Chinese Eastern Railway should be handed over to Chinese peasants at the expense of Russian peasants. Um, and in the following year, um, the Karakhan Declaration was reissued in a rather different form. Um, uh, um, the Bolshevik leaders maintained that um, it had been um, garbled in transmission or r- sabotaged for some purpose, and they retracted the promises they'd made about the 
Chinese Eastern Railway and similar issues. Soviet, in fact, what I mentioned earlier, the Soviet detachment of Outer Mongolia from Chinese control, which was, again, very much seen as following in the Tsarist footsteps. Effectively, the Soviet leaders were trying to project an image of generosity and um, <clears throat> goodwill towards the Chinese people, but some of their conduct did um, suggest strategic ambitions not, not dissimilar to those of the overthrown Tsarist regime. You know, we tend to, I think, to kind of focus a lot on Manchuria when it comes to conversations about Russian involvement in China with things like the railway and the thing like um, how they're responsible for the city of Harbin. Um, but what about kind of elsewhere? along the border. I'm thinking more about kind of Central Asia, you know, kind of Mongolia and westward, kind of what what was the history of, of Russian-China engagement in that part of the world? Central Asia is also a very significant part of the story. And in some respects, it's parallel to the Mongol- Manchurian part, but with one striking difference, that in Central Asia, you're dealing not just with the Russians and Chinese, but with what you might call the peoples in the middle, the Mongols, the um, Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Turkic and Islamic people. And you've got this three-dimensional picture um, with a fairly marked tendency of um, the Russian and Chinese to join hands at the expense of what I call the people in the middle, though it didn't necessarily always work like that. So, for example, from the point that um, formal relations were established between Russia and China in 1689 through to the um, middle of the 18th century, um, there was a kind of strategic triangle involving Russia, China, and the Dzungar Mongols, who created quite a formidable state of their own in what's now Xinjiang. And the Qing were very anxious to ensure Russian neutrality while they made war on the Dzungars, who were blocking their own intended path to westward expansion. Um, after, After the... Annihilation, effectively, of the Dzungar Mongols by the Qing in the late 1750s. This factor disappeared. Um, But the developments then began to take place um, in Xinjiang at about the same time that they did um, in in Manchuria in the 1850s. In fact, as early as 1851, Russian diplomats had managed to conclude a treaty which provided for um, their traders to have um, what they they referred to as trading circles um, in Xinjiang. Um, These traders were to be supervised by uh, Russian consuls and were to come under Russian rather than Chinese jurisdiction. And so at this very early date of 1651, you already had a kind of 
um, extra extraterritorial arrangement and the creation of two major inland ports for the benefit of the Russians. After the three big Manchuria-related treaties were concluded in 1858-60, um, another pact followed um, dealing with Xinjiang in 1864. Um, and again, adjusting various disputed kinks in the border to the benefit of the Russians. Um, Central Asia was also the scene of the, the one serious attempt that Russians made at another big, big territorial expansion at this period in the late 19th century. Um, what had happened was that um, the Muslim, the, the Turkic populations of Xinjiang had risen up against their Manchu rulers. Um, the Russians had moved in ostensibly with the benevolent intention of helping the Qing by occupying the Yili Valley in the west of in the west of Xinjiang and undertaking to protect it for the Qing until they had the chance to put down the insurrection which had taken place. Um, now in the late 18th that, that happened in 1871, in the late 1870s the, the Qing army did actually manage to regain the bulk of Xinjiang with the help of the Russians um, who supplied them with grain from Siberia. However, at this point, the Russian authorities had come to the conclusion that they didn't actually intend to give this Ely Valley back. It was so it was a very fertile area, um, granary of much of Western China, in fact, and um, already Soviet, already Russian geologists were taking quite an interest in the local mineral wealth. So a collision inevitably resulted. Um, a very foolish piece of Qing diplomacy resulted in the Russians getting even more back than they'd expected. Um, the, this outraged the Qing court. An army was, was dispatched to make war on the Russians in Ely. Um, and for a brief period in 1880, serious conflict seemed likely. However, the Russians in the end um, pulled back. Um, they decided that they couldn't afford the financial cost of waging, waging a war. Um, and in any case, they were rather alarmed as to what might replace the Qing dynasty if they succeeded in overthrowing it. So, what ha so for the rest of the uh, 19th century, um, um, the Russians contented themselves with economic penetration of Xinjiang, which was conducted very thoroughly. Um, and their officials threw their weight around in the region quite extensively and um, told local Chinese officials what to do but no attempt was made at actual annexation. This broad pattern repeated itself much later in the 1930s when the Russians were concerned um, with the prospect of a Japanese strategic advance into Xinjiang 
um, uh, um, the Japanese appeared to be backing the um, Islamic Turkic uh, majority against the then Chinese nationalist rulers. And the Russians were determined to block um, the Japanese at all costs. And so they sent troops into Xinjiang to support um, a Chinese officer who had taken over the administration of the region, a certain Sheng Shui And over the following years, they effectively, Xinjiang became a Russian protectorate with um, its whole political, economic, military systems modeled on the Soviet ones. Um, the Soviet U- Union taking the opportunity to extract huge amounts of oil, tin, and other minerals. Um, this this proceeded until World War II, when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Um, Sheng Shui at this point decided to evict his Soviet advisors and supervisors and um, draw closer again to the Chinese nationalist government, which he nominally represented. The Russians reacted to this um, by switching their more or less traditional backing for the Chinese rule in Xinjiang and instead prodding the um, um, Uyghur and Kazakh minorities to rise up against the nationalists. However, this was fairly fairly short-lived. By 1945, um, the Russians had come to a deal with the nationalist government under which a provisional coalition government would be formed in Xinjiang. Um, The local um, Muslim and Turkic forces were put on the back burner, though they kept a kind of autonomous area known as the Three Districts, um, in the northwest corner of the re- region. Um, 1949, when the Chinese Communist armies were, were, were prevailing in the Civil War, um, Stalin gave the go-ahead to the CCP to take over Xinjiang, and that really put an end to um, the would-be independent um, Turkic Islamic regime of the three districts. In fact, it's even been conjectured that Stalin may have orchestrated the crash of an aircraft in August 1949, which resulted in the deaths of um, the, the, the more or less the entire three districts leadership. And in the in the following decades. Um, As Sino-Soviet relations got worse, um, the Russians again on occasion intervened as patrons of the disaffected Muslim majority, um, offering encouragements to a large emigration of um, Kazakhs in 1962 who crossed the border into Soviet Kazakhstan. And then in 1969, um, broadcasting to Xinjiang, calling on the Uyghurs and Kazakhs, and also incidentally the Mongols and Tibetans, to free themselves from 
mouth in human chauvinism. Um, this, since 1991, the Central Asian story has taken on a, a, new, a new character, um, the focus now being not so much on Xinjiang as on um, the territories to the west of it, the long-standing um, West um, Soviet rule, Russian and Soviet ruled area of Western Turkestan, where the Russians have been, the Chinese, I'm sorry, have been extending their influence um, for the first time since the mid 18th century. Up till now, um, Russians and Chinese seem to have worked worked out a fairly satisfactory, um, amicable a partnership in in this ex ex Soviet Turkestan, the Russians have um, continued to dominate in the military and political sphere, while the Chinese have engaged in um, um, the, the economic development of the of the, of the region and have built up a very very commanding economic position. Um, however, on at least one occasion in the last few years, the Chinese have violated this um, tacit understanding that they stick to the economics and leave the rest of the Russians. Um, it, by, 2000, by 2016, they'd established a military training presence in Tajikistan, um, where the, their object being to back the Tajik government in blocking the penetration of um, Islamic extremism through Tajik, from Afghanistan through Tajikistan and into um, Xinjiang. Um, this, in, this didn't in itself constitute any kind of threat to the Russian position in the region, but the Chinese had made this move without... Um, consulting the Russians, and the Kremlin is said to have been rather rattled by that. So that's a kind of potted history of the the part that Central Asia has played in the relationship. Well, I mean, it it, it all sounds extremely complicated, especially when we get to the um, the period after, well, the period with the Soviet Union and then communist China, um, which maybe it's a segue to talk about talk about the the leaders of each um, at least immediately after the second world war um stalin for the soviet union and mao for for the people's republic of china for, for, for the prc um i think saying it's a strained relationship um may be putting it quite mildly um but 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 i guess what was actually between between these two um between these two communist heads of state um you know, Stalin doesn't seem like at the beginning that that he's quite a firm backer of the CCP. Mao seems to constantly um, resent this. Um, but then, obviously, but then Stalin dies, and the and the view appears to flip. It's kind of like so. So, what is this relationship between these between these two leaders? Well, I certainly find it very difficult to imagine that somebody um, as paranoid as Stalin could have felt really comfortable with Mao, or that somebody as nationalistic. And if you like egocentric as Mao could really have felt comfortable um, with Stalin. 
And I think on the whole, what evidence there is rather confirms that impression. Um, To begin with, to take Stalin first, even in the late 1940s, after he'd been engaged in telegraphic correspondence with Stalin for years, with with Mao for years, um, Stalin was grumbling to his um, aides, who is this Mao Zedong? I don't know anything about him. He's never been to China. He's never been to Russia. Um, and when when Mao eventually came to Moscow in December 1949, Stalin um, Stalin initially dumped him in a in a dacha on the outskirts of Moscow for, for several days, sending in um, his lieutenants, Molotov, Mikoyan, and Bulganin, to try and find out, as he put it, what sort of fellow Mao was. And it's even said that the secret police, the, KG, the NKVD, had uh, arranged to whisk Ma- Mao's stools away on a regular basis um, so that they could analyse them in the hope of finding some clue as to Mao's personality. Um, on various occasions, Stalin indicated that his conviction that Mao wasn't a real communist. Um, he described Mao at various times as a caveman, a margarine Marxist, a... Um, a radish, that is somebody who's red outside but white on the inside. Now, this, this has been often been interpreted as an attempt to reassure um, the American representatives with whom Stalin came into contact and try and persuade them that they needn't have any concerns about the any threat from the Chinese Communist Party. But as Stalin made exactly the same points in conversations private conversations with his own cronies like Beria and Khrushchev, um, it seems likely that this really did reflect what he felt. After Mao became emerged from the great from the long march as the undisputed um, CCP leader, um, Charlin, Stalin found him obstructive on several occasions. Um, getting in the way of Stalin's priority, which was really purely strategic. Um, And in 1936, for example, um, Stalin had to intervene following the um, famous Xi'an incident when Chiang Kai-shek was kidnapped by his own officers and Mao was trying to get him handed over to the CCP for trial and execution. Stalin intervened to stop this and um, Mao was um, entered in a, dos- a dossier on Mao um, um, listed, referred to Mao as a Trotskyite and Japanese spy. Um, two years later, in 1938, when Stalin was trying to pressurize Mao into stepping up what was supposed to be 
a united front between the CCP and the nationalist government, and Mao was being uncooperative, um, his dossier again referred to Mao as um, a Trotsky as a Trotskyite in the at the heart of the Chinese Communist Party. And in 1949, the winter of 1949, only a few months before Mao came to power, um, yet again, Mao's NKVD dossier um, described him as that American and Japanese spy. So we, a lot of this looks very much like a reflection of Stalin's paranoia and that Mao was um, particularly a focus for that paranoia. Now, as far as Mao was concerned, um, from already from the early 1930s, he was uncomfortable in his position in the Jiangxi Soviet. He was under attack from the Stalinist young younger leaders of the CCP at that time, um, um, <coughs> and he he was made, as one historian puts it, to drink his fill of Russian ink. And he, according to some theories, he was already conceived, as early as this date, a deep aversion to Stalin. After taking over the leadership of the CCP after the Long March, um, he steered um, the party steadily away from the Soviet Soviet direction, um, most notably during the rectification campaign in Yenan in 1942, uh, where he was really working to um, purge the party of Soviet influence. Um, And he was recorded by one source as saying saying at this time that Stalin doesn't know about China, he cannot know about China, and all his theories about our revolution are nothing more than the blatherings of a fool. In the late 1940s, um, with CCP victory in the civil war approaching, um, Mao seems to have thought it was a good time to make a bit of a um, U-turn on this. Um, he started making um, reverential remarks about Stalin again, um, referred to him as um, the supreme master. But all of this, this sea change didn't, didn't last very long. And by the time of his visit to Moscow in December 1949, um, Mao actually um, <coughs> Mao actually made a, the very first remark he, made, he, uh, um, he addressed to Stalin on the day of his arrival in Moscow, um, complaining about how he'd been browbeaten for years, i.e. by the um, young Stalinist leaderships of the party, and had had no one to complain to. Um, Following his four days of effective internment in the Dacha, when he had to come out to attend Stalin's 70th birthday party celebration, Mao was in a state of deep sulk. The The same picture was visible a month later after um, Stalin and Molotov had given 
Mao a really thoroughgoing dressing down, um, Mao again went into a deep sulk and refused to take a, an active part in, uh, in, in a banquet which had been organized for him for, for, for him in Stalin's country villa. Um, after Stalin died, when Khrushchev delivered his secret speech condemning Stalin, Mao finally jumped at the opportunity of venting all his pent-up resentments against the deceased Soviet dictator. Um, he complained about how Stalin had, hadn't allowed the CCP to make revolution, how it hadn't how, the, how Stalin hadn't helped the CCP during the Civil War, hadn't given it any supplies, not even a fart, as he put it um, in earthy, characteristically earthy language. Um, and, and, and then went on to complain about the ugly atmosphere of his 1949-50 visit to Moscow and the bitter pills he'd been made to swallow um, by conceding the Soviet, conceding the, the establishment of Soviet-Chinese joint ventures in Xinjiang and Manchuria. However, um, at the very same time, Stalin, uh, Mao also jumped at the opportunity of using Stalin as a stick to beat his successor, Khrushchev. Um, um, Mao began to Mao began to make observations such as that out of out of Stalin's ten fingers only three only three were rotten. How the Soviet leaders had discarded the sword of Stalin. Um, he told his physician, Doctor Li Zhuisui, that the Soviet Union was going out to attack Stalin, but we will not. Um, and what this what this suggests to me is that Mao's real animosity was probably not directed against either um, Stalin or Khrushchev so much as against Soviet domination in general and whoever seems to represent Soviet domination at any given time. That's the picture I have of um, Mao's Mao the Stalin Mao relationship. Yeah, so I, I want to end by um, kind of talking about China and Russia's relationship uh, today. You know, I think it's it's obviously a topic of conversation in the news, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, um, mm -hmm. and the you may or may not call it ill-advised declaration <laughs> of month earlier to the invasion that Beijing and Moscow had a, had a no limits friendship. Um, you know, I think com some commentators look at China's refusal to um, vocally denounce the invasion as proof that it's backing Russia. Others look to its less than enthusiastic embrace um, as proof that maybe it's being that, that it's hedging its bets a lot more. Um, but given kind of your study of this history in the past four centuries of this relationship, kind of what do you see, how do you understand China and Russia's relationship today? Well, I think um, 
one thing that not many people understand is how rooted this relationship actually is. The, the current period of sunny relations has already lasted for 30 years. Um, that's three times as long as the um, unhappy so-called Sino-Soviet honeymoon of the 1950s. China and Russia have been have they they've from from a friendship at the end of 1992, China and Russia have advanced steadily to a um, constructive partnership in 1994, a strategic partnership in 1996, and a comprehensive strategic partnership in 2016. Now, but this relationship, unlike the 1950s honeymoon, it's not a revolutionary one. In fact, in many respects, it's a deeply conservative partnership um, grounded in a, kind, in a shared belief in, uh, in the values espoused, for example, by the Treaty of Utrecht in 1648, the sanctity of nation states and national borders, and, um, and the right of national rulers to do what they want with their populations within their borders, um, and which is this, which has of course um, conflicted directly with the growing consensus in the West that national rulers are in fact answerable to a higher tribunal, a higher global tribunal, for the internal policies they pursue and their behaviour towards their populations. So. Russia and China have been pushed together by th that factor, made reinforced still more strongly as the military confrontation with Western countries has grown in the in the last few years. Now, um, obviously, there have been periods of when the relationship has been put under potential stress, notably by Putin's military adventures in um, Georgia in 2008, in the Crimea in 2014, and most recently, of course, in the Ukraine. Um, these adventures of Putin have conflicted, have flown in the face of the Westphalian concept of respecting the sanctity of national borders. And for that reason, um, yes, the um, CCP have not been prepared to explicitly to endorse what um, their Russian partners have been doing. Um, but at the same time, they've also um, directed full criticism at the expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe, which actually anybody could have foreseen would, would produce the, any, anyone with a knowledge of Russian history and psychology could have foreseen would produce the reaction it has produced. Um, so, uh, China has therefore seems to have settled for a policy of what one might call 
studied ambivalence, um, but there's been no indication that they they want to break with um, their Russian partners over over the, over the, over these issues. Yes, there's been no indication that they wanted to break with their Russian partners over these issues. I mean, it's possible that if Putin were to make a move so drastic as, for example, to start using tactical nuclear weapons in the Ukraine, um, then that would be a red line. Um, but the there was no visible sign of movement following Xi's visit to Moscow in March, um, though it may turn out that the appointment of a, a mediator to shuttle between Russia and the Ukraine may may represent a incremental change. Um, but so far as I can see, the present uh, Sino-Russian relationship is actually pretty pretty stable, and um, it's quite useful to look at the remarks made by various commentators in the last few years. There was a um, professor of the National Defense College in Beijing back in 2011 who predicted that so long as um, United States pressure on China remains, the Sino-Russian partnership will endure. Um, Again, in 2015, uh, a distinguished former deputy foreign minister by the name of uh, Fu Ying wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in which she insisted that the new Sino-Russian relationship was not a marriage of convenience. It was complex, sturdy, and deeply rooted. Um, In 2018, a Russian professor, Alexander Lukin, added his voice to this, saying that um, the foundations of the relationship are now so strong that um, any differences can be swiftly resolved through the existing mechanisms of consultation. And finally, um, in December 2020, in what seems now like rather a prescient remark, um, Xi Jinping told Putin over the telephone that um, the relationship was so strong that it couldn't now be um, disrupted by any third party and could stand up to all any kind of international turmoil. Did he know what was coming in the Ukraine in 2022? So as I say, I think the in the short term, at least, the relationship is pretty solid, pretty strong. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be. And I think it's possible to, ident- to identify possible hazards which it may encounter. Um, most obviously, perhaps, the now striking imbalance in the relationship in the sense that where there was once overwhelming Russian or Soviet um, military and economic superiority, there's now a fast developing Chinese superiority. For example, um, it's reported that the Ch- China's GDP is now said to be 10 times the size of Russia's. Um, Russia's GDP is said to have been outstripped by that of Guangdong province alone. Um, 
where once there was an exchange of um, Chinese raw materials for Russian manufactured goods, the, the relationship is now essentially one of uh, Russian supplies of oil, gas, and um, increasingly coal um, being supplied in exchange for ch Chinese electronics and other sophisticated consumer goods. Um, and not surprisingly, this has led people to wonder whether um, Russia is going to find itself increasingly what they call a resource appendage of China and whether, it, whether it's going to be able to tolerate that. Even in the realm of armaments, um, which, which and Russia has been the traditional supplier of armaments to China since the mid-19th century, um, the picture now seems increasingly to be um, Russia looking for China, looking to China for weaponry, in particularly in sectors such as drones and surface-to-air missiles and naval engines. Um, and this economic imbalance could or could be um, could have repercussions in the political sphere too. I, we've already spoken about developments in Central Asia and um, the, the possibility or even likelihood that Chinese clout in Central Asia is going to expand from economic and to the military sphere as well. On top of that, there's the underlying um, demographic problem pretty much expressed in the imbalance between a Russian population of 6 million in the Russian Far East being confronted by um, a Chinese population of 110 million people in the three northeastern Chinese provinces. Um, this was already a source of anxiety as far back as the late 19th century when um, um, Tsarist officials and, and traders fretted about the uh, apparent Chinese tide which was pouring into the, their newly acquired Far East. Um, a similar, similar agitation was caused when at the end of the Soviet period the Chinese were sending in traders to supply um, increasingly destitute Russian inhabitants with food and clothing. Um, for a time, the Russian government did seem to calm down this alarm, um, most particularly by publishing um, documents, sh showing the census documents, showing that the permanent Chinese residents of Russia were not in fact so numerous by compa as compared with the um, itinerant, the tra transient traders and laborers. Um, but even, the, even so, in recent years, West, uh, Western visitors to the Russian cities on the Amur um, um, have noticed a continuing continuing unease and anxiety of the local Russian population about this real or imaginary yellow peril. Finally, um, there's the 
actually the long-term question of human relations. Back in the 1950s, the picture was one of steadily worsening relations at the top between the Chinese and Russian and Soviet leaderships, um, offset to some extent by warm relations between Soviet scientists, engineers, and other aid workers who'd been sent in to help the PRC and their Chinese pupils. Um, the situation today is precisely the opposite of that. Um, you have a cosy, um, cosy embraces between the political leaders, but very little interaction at all um, between ordinary people at the grassroots. And the Chinese authorities have, and Russian authorities have both been worried about this. And um, from since 2006, they've organized an, an, annual years of Russia in China and years of China in Russia to re reintroduce the other side's culture. Um, whether, whether this has had much impact, it's rather hard to, to say, but I think it's, it's, it's not unreasonable to... Um, not, it's, made, it's, it's been an experiment at least worth, worth trying. So there are these hazards potentially down the road. I mean, it may be that skillful diplomacy will enable Russia and China to navigate around them. Um, but, no, but it would be foolish to deny that they exist. So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Philip Snow, author of China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict and Concord. Philip, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Right. Okay, well, the first question is, um, it's, it, the book is certainly available on Amazon. Um, it's in some, though not all, of the Hong Kong bookshops at the moment. Not, I think, at the moment in IFC Bookazine, but in some of the others. Um, it, I think it's supposed to be the, 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 it's supposed to be it should be should should be widely available by June at least. Um, it's been came out in the U.S. in late April, um, and it's due in Australia in again in June. As regards my own plans, well, I think following the development of the Sino-Russian relations is going to keep me occupied for quite some time. In the meantime, I'm just following on events and um, amusing myself in the spare moments by trying to teach myself Portuguese. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. It's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. Um, we're on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us to interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news that's coming up on the show. But before then, Philip, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you.